NFTs, people kind of assume that they're one thing legally, but they may not be. And the first thing we actually did with Toco was a fractionalized um, piece of artwork where we actually had shared uh, ownership interests, but they were unique because we did put a different part of the picture onto each token. Coming to you live from Hong Kong Fintech Week, this is the Crypto Savvy Podcast from the Hashkey Group, bringing you the essentials. Everything you need to know about the world of crypto in one place with our host, Walter Jennings. Today at Hong Kong Fintech Week, we are pleased to introduce a commemorative NFT that is available to all attendees coming to Hong Kong Fintech Week. We simply ask you to download the HashKeyMe app and then come by the booth and we will give you a one of 5,000 commemorative NFTs. Now, how do you mint an NFT? How do you go from artwork to an NFT? There's a process and we're using the commemorative NFT as an emblematic or an example of how tokenization will in the future power the economy. Joining me in the booth are Scott Thiel, who's returning for his second time on Crypto Savvy. Scott is the partner and head of the technology team at the global law firm, DLA Piper. He's also the go-to person for the firm's information, cyber law, and blockchain practice in Asia. Also joining us in the booth is Jeffrey Choi. He's partner and head of consulting practice at digital asset strategy consulting firm, BCW Group here in Hong Kong. Jeffrey is also the program director of TOCO, a digital asset tokenization platform co-engineered by DLA Piper and BCW Group. Last but certainly not least, I'm delighted to have my colleague Ben Elbaz join this conversation. Ben is head of ecosystems at Hashkey Group. He leads the group's strategic partnerships, blockchain applications, and asset tokenization. Ben is also an advisor to the Hong Kong Monetary Authority and Bank for International Settlements Project on tokenized financial products. Sit back, relax, and enjoy learning more about the tokenization of an NFT for Hong Kong Fintech Week. To dive in, uh, we're talking about an NFT, and that means what, Ben? Can you kind of tell us uh, a little bit more about NFT and then the chain that was chosen to mint this? Yeah, sure. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good example of trying to actually you know, practice what you preach, right? Which is that we've spent a lot of time looking at blockchain and tokens, and what does the actual process look, at, look like to, to generate one of these? So. If you look at the actual uh, you know, terminology, NFT, it's standing for non-fungible token, which essentially all that means is a very complicated way of saying it's, it's a unique asset, right? Uh, and in terms of you, like, you hammer down to the technology, basically each of these tokens have, have a unique ID. So that stands in contrast to what you see from a lot of other cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, Bitcoin, for example, where it's like one Bitcoin owned by this guy can be traded with that guy and they're fungible, right? They're interchangeable. Um, so, I mean, NFTs, essentially, it's just, you know, it's a unique ownership asset and they can be allocated to, to any different types of asset. In this case, we've we've applied it to ownership of a digital uh, print artwork. So when you say non-fungible, it means uh, one of a kind and fungible means tradable. So in my wallet, my $100 bill would be fungible and my driver's license would be non-fungible. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Awesome. Now, this is actually minted on the Polygon uh, blockchain. Can you tell us why this one blockchain was selected and how NFT uh, developers choose a blockchain? No, 
sure. I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's actually a very important point, right? Which is, you know, I think with a lot of the work that we've done, we've been very, we've been very optimistic and hopeful about the Ethereum blockchain. And there's so much excitement and a lot of app developers building a lot of things on there. If you look at some of the leading NFT marketplaces out there, OpenSea, for example, you know, they kind of got their start building on the Ethereum chain. Uh, and we looked when we looked at this problem, uh, you know, we're not we're not issuing, you know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions. But at the same time, we are still conscious of the the gas fees, like the blockchain transaction fees that you have to pay uh, when when minting these items. So, um, you know, we kind of looked at, you know, we looked at, you know, layer one and Ethereum. It's like relatively costly to uh, to execute transactions on that currently, given all the activity on it. Um, but, you know. Uh, Polygon, the Polygon network, which is rebranded from Formatic, is a layer two solution, right? So there's these scalability solutions that uh, kind of periodically will will post their state to the Ethereum blockchain, so they get the security, they're able to borrow the the security of the Ethereum blockchain while having a little bit of the the scalability advantages. So the you know the the byproduct of scalability advantages is that the the transaction fees and the gas fees are lower for for things that you want to do in massive quantity. So it was really kind of a um, you know uh, you know a, a bit of a cost calculation. And we like the fact that it was, you know, still tied into the the Ethereum um, ecosystem. Fantastic. And uh, for those of you who are listening here live, um, if you go to your um, mobile phone and download HashKeyMe, you will then, after registering, be able to see any of the folks here in the booth and we'll be able to give you a commemorative NFT. Now, um, we're talking about tokenization of artwork and um, Scott Thiel, partner at DLA Piper, why would a law firm get involved in tokenization? It's a great question. Uh, thanks, Walter. Um, there, there's a lot of complexity to the creation of digital assets. Um, if we're talking about NFT and artwork, um, there are obviously a range of, of rights. Really, really, any of these tokens, um, whether they're cryptocurrencies or NFTs or security tokens, ultimately they are a form of bundling rights into a into a digital asset that can then be traded, moved, bought, sold, etc. Um, and so, when we look at uh, something like an artwork, you've got you know what are the rights when I buy an NFT? What do I what do I get with that? And I think one of the challenges and and and, and the risks in the current marketplace is that. There are probably people spending large amounts of money on what will turn out to be a JPEG that's freely available on the internet, which, if you've spent 100000 on it, may turn out not to be such a great investment uh, once, the, uh, once the hype you know, sort of falls away. Um, and so it's really important that when we create these rights, we think about those issues that as a law firm um, we worry about as well in terms of what about the intellectual property rights, what about the commercialization rights, how do we, how do we prove you know, and establish that, that kind of scarcity uh, elements that really, really helps you know, with, with the pricing and resale pricing. And so you know, it's a critical um, bundle of uh, legal issues that, that need to go into thinking about um, you know, the next generation of NFTs where I think value will be really important and people will start scratching the surface of what have I actually bought. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's the there's the potential for more complex assets, so security tokens, where we're talking about fractional ownership of larger scale real world assets, for example, and the digitization of financial instruments, uh, and that will add a, a whole lot more complexity around securities law, collective investment scheme regulation, um, and so this is why, you know, as a law firm, actually, there's a really complex legal compliance challenge embedded in in that future of finance, and for us, being able to not only do the legal pieces of global law firm but be able to then sort of translate that into well how do we deploy these things and ensure those uh, all of that compliance works at the tech layer that's kind of why we built Turco. so even in an 
commemorative NFT, you're having to issue a smart contract, which then gets written onto the blockchain. And that smart contract contains all of the information about the provenance, about how many were published, about when it was published, the price it was published, and that's all easily discoverable on the blockchain. Is that a correct? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's absolutely correct. And I think actually that's potentially just the beginning of where we'll be able to take this as well. So, you know, as you, as you alluded to, when we're, if you went and bought a, a piece of uh, artwork in the real world today, well, how do I know it's the original? How do I know where it's been? How do I know where it's stored? Um, and, and you know that's a piece of art. We see this with all types of assets, and people spend huge amounts of money then doing discovery, building diligence activities, getting lawyers involved, and these are hugely expensive and inefficient processes. The way technology and the blockchain technology can be used is, as you as you said, you know, for a, a digital piece of art, we can we can bake some of that information into the token and onto the blockchain. Uh, it's there. It's publicly available. It's it's immutable. So we've we've done you know uh, artwork NFTs where we've done things like not only the legal contracts with the IP flows where we hash those legal contracts and we build them into the uh, into the token, but also as you talk about you know some of the provenance type stuff. So we've got one example of a, of an artwork where we we had a video file of the artist actually painting the artwork, and then we hashed the video file and we put the hash into the token. And so now you've got sort of a living, breathing data room. Well, there it is. Here's the guy creating it. Here's the, the flow of, of the IP and showing that the, the good title has been moving along with this digital asset. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, not only the first purchase, which is helpful to see all of that, but then when it comes to the secondary market, a, a would-be new buyer goes, oh, fantastic. Look, I can see it's real. I can see where it's come from. I can see the IP rights flowing to me. I'm now confident what I'm buying is is legitimate and has has the necessary rights. So this is where the the blockchain tech will not only create that assurance from a, a buyer's perspective, but will create kind of this permanent living and breathing you know data room uh, that'll be hugely efficient. Well, uh, now uh, it makes it uh, unnecessary for me to question if my $20 Andy Warhol is original. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Jeffrey yeah. Choi, you're a partner with BCW Group, and uh, while a lawyer is uh, self-introductory, can you tell us a little bit about what BCW Group is? Sure, of course. Uh, BCW is a uh, boutique fintech consulting advisory firm. We have Fortune 500 with their uh, deal team blockchain strategy. How do you actually take a quite nascent technology integrated with an existing technical stack. Um, whether you want to build a front-end uh, uh, application or technology on top of the back-end infrastructure, uh, for, th for the most part, a lot of our clients originally started a couple years ago with a private chain architecture. And over time, we found out that interoperability, public chains, that's the future. So how do you take an existing um, uh, architecture in your organization, modernize it, to incorporate blockchain and then take that to the next step incorporate it into a public chain and having multiple ledgers working together to actually build real world usable uh, worthwhile use cases such as toko okay so i have the artwork um, i have my smart contract what happens next and uh, tell us about uh, the process of tokenization of course I, I think i think it's really important to take one quick step back and really think about um nfts as somewhat of a digital collectible so you in the real world asset like a real estate or a piece of art you have the asset itself you digitize that right that's actually the easy part what's not easy is what do you do with a digital certificate that re represents ownership what do you do with digital content that could be generated downstream from the digitization of a physical asset into a digital form and then also uh how do you actually distribute 
that information onto the blockchain. So we have to look at it at different layers. And working with Scott Teal and the team at DLA Piper, we've, we've found out a multi-step process. First, feasibility study in terms of structuring. How do you actually structure this asset in a way where it's actually convertible from a, from a physical digital asset with the terms, conditions, IP rights, and assignments, et cetera, related to its legal structure? And at that point, we choose the technology. Now, are you doing uh, high volume transactions where this is highly liquid, tradable in the secondary market? Is this a physical piece of real estate that probably trades once or twice and then you have to pay stamp duty once, once or twice every five years, all right? And then you choose the technology stack and standard on that. Um, next, we then work with a compliance process to actually take that to market. So soliciting uh, properly, legally, with licensed and regulated partners, how do you actually go out and find investors? Then how do you take that to market? And then eventually, secondary trade, uh, as well as downstream asset servicing based on smart contract activities that are tied back to the actual token or series of tokens. Okay, and the um, all of that work is the genesis of your partnership with DLA and BCW called TOCO, a, uh, I believe that is a uh, token engine that you've developed. TOCO is an interesting, very interesting name. TOCO actually is Indonesian for marketplace. I'll let Scott little talk a little bit more about the impetus of, of, of the, the name origination. Um, TOCO itself was, was really derived from uh, Scott Teal, DLA Piper's, uh, innovation and forward thinking about how to actually take this new technology and incorporate it into um, an ecosystem that really needed some type of automation for uh, expanding into multiple new markets like democratization of finance and other asset ownership uh, capabilities. Now I won't get into the retail side of this, but uh, overall I think it's, it's been a very exciting journey to be working with Scott and, and the team over at DLA Piper. From a legal aspect, I've learned a lot about what's possible, not possible, various multiple jurisdictions. And then also Scott, probably uh, likewise, we've learned together about the technology stack and how to actually integrate that into a proper product offering for the current market today. Okay, so Jeffrey, I'm going to go back. I yep. have my artwork. I yep. have my contract. What happens? Yeah, so um, once you've created the contract in physical digital form, then the contract gets hashed into uh, uh, via TOCO. We, it's a token asset tokenization engine. So within this, we have a maker checker process with, uh, with various different steps and modules in which the legal documents are then tied with that physical asset, uh, combined together, then minted out. And then we move into a regulated custodian or we self-custody uh, within the regulated means. Uh, of course, with, 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 with uh, uh, NFTs as an unregulated asset. So with, with those kind of uh, assets, you can actually self-custody temporarily. And then we move it to the final uh, investor or owner uh, via uh, an OTC operation or, or direct transfer. If it's a regulated asset, then we move it into a broker-dealer kind of environment where uh, custodians are instructed to move after delivery versus payment uh, activities are completed. And then that goes into secondary trade, either via an exchange like Hashkey in the future uh, or, or other OTC ATS markets. So. Well, that's a fantastic segue because uh, we minted this NFT as a way of educating the market about tokenization. And while we certainly do want everyone here to please uh, download HashKeyMe and we'll give you a copy of this token, um, we're trying to raise awareness of the process of tokenization and what can be tokenized. So you mentioned, Jeffrey, about the secondary market. Um, I'm going to ask Ben, uh, what's the role then of an exchange and HashKey Group uh, will provide a, a trading place? Can you uh, perhaps uh, explain a bit further what happens now that we've got these NFTs in the secondary market? Yeah, sure. No, I think, um, you know, 
re relaying this back to Hashkey, right? In the future, how can we, you know, how can we actually bring some of this change to market? Uh, I think it's I think it's well known in you know public information that you know, a few years ago Hashkey started applying was one of the first applicants for uh, for the license regime in in Hong Kong, right? So out of Hong Kong, you have you know you had a few years of the uh, the Securities and Futures Commission really trying to figure out what would be the best. Um, you know, licensing framework for for virtual asset trading platform operators, uh, and then it was finalized. Uh, and after it's finalized, right? You know, it's it's essentially a combination of a Type One and a Type Seven license. Um, so Hashkey is very focused on um, you know basically bringing that the, that exchange to market uh, and really focusing on that on that license application process. Um, and it's actually quite. I mean, looking you know maybe zooming out and looking at the industry a little bit, right? If you look at the secondary markets that are that have been out there traditionally in, in Asia. Uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of you know millions of users on a number of different platforms in this part of the world, um, but there's definitely I mean I think from our perspective is we think that there could be there could be there could be a better version of uh, of some of these secondary markets out out in Asia and you know while there are constraints with you know with regulation and 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 with licensing we feel that there are a lot of advantages that you can bring to investors by by launching a regulated licensed uh, exchange to marketplace. Um, for example, right? If you look at, um, you know, Jeff was was talking a little bit about custody, right? Custody of some of these assets. Uh, one of the key, one of these key provisions of the licensing framework in Hong, in Hong Kong, is you know protection of client money, protection of client assets, uh, and essentially what that means is that once the exchange receives, you know, deposits of your assets, it actually doesn't belong legally. It doesn't belong to the exchange, right? It belongs to, you know, it's held in custody. It's held in trust. For the beneficiary of that client, and there's actually legal protection behind the assets that uh, in that in that manner. Whereas, like if you look at some of the other you know unregulated or exchanges that just operate under you know either money services licenses or under some of the payments licenses, you might not necessarily have the same protection for your assets. So I think there's a lot of like really strong advantages that we're that we're looking at with this uh, with this particular platform. And I think our our strategy when we look at this, like the strategy is really. Um, you know, building an ecosystem of partners from professional services on the law side, and then also from technology platforms, where we can ensure that there is a, a very strong amount of deal flow that comes into the secondary markets. Um, so we're actually pretty pretty excited about uh, about putting this together. Um, and you know, the combination of being able to trade cryptocurrencies, you know, utility tokens and security tokens once this platform is licensed and, and up is actually very, very exciting to us. So the NFT then is emblematic of future tokenization opportunities to come. Yeah, I think I, th I think the whole NFT space, like I think what's really interesting about NFTs is it's, it's, it's quite broad, right? There's some, if it's just like artwork or collectibles, it's a non-regulated asset, it's not a security token. But in other cases, you can issue NFTs that represent for example, it could represent real estate or it's some type of ownership and some type of financial instrument. You know, those are security tokens. So it's actually, it's quite interesting to us because there's a broad range of opportunities, a broad range of assets that you can tokenize. Um, and, you know, from the issuer's perspective, by having a collaboration or relationship with a secondary market that is able to support all these different types of assets, I think that's, that's where kind of the you know, kind of the partnership magic comes into place. Yeah, in fact, we've uh, uh, recently put out a white paper on this. You can find that at hashkey.com backslash tokenization. Um, and please do use the English spelling with an S and not the American spelling with a Z. Uh, so sorry about that. Um, uh, Jeff, how long a process are we talking about? Because I had my final artwork about 10 days ago, and uh, a few days later I had tokens. So tell me about the process. I'll talk about the technology piece. I think Scott should probably cover about the legal side of it. Um, so the technology piece, once, of course, legal structuring and work is completed, 
uh, as long as we have all the requirements and all the 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 uh, objects to be hashed, and we understand where things like from uh, if you you want to have an IPFS file store, etc., where you're going to put your content, um, the tokenization really happens within. It could be minutes, could be hours, depending on on uh, the use case. Now, your use case is very unique, I would say. Um, usually, NFT issued single one by one because they are unique. Um, working with Ben and the team, we found out that because it's commemorative and it's a sequential ordering of actual uh, minting creation, um, we we created a script uh, to actually automate most of this activity along uh, uh, integration of a, another standard, ERC's uh, 1155 standard on uh, Polygonmatic. And, and so uh, it took a little bit of time, of course, for TOCO to integrate that technology uh, uh, addition into our current stack offering. Uh, but, you know, as partners, we, we, we made that happen and uh, we're really excited. So uh, after we do all of the integration activities, which we're talking about a commemorative uh, uh, NFT right now. In the future, let's say we do do a sequenced, automated flow from custodian, uh, from Toco to custodian to exchange, that will take some time. So uh, I, I'd, I'd say uh, tokenization itself only happens in, in minutes or, or hours, depending on the use case, if we, you have everything infrastructure-wise developed and executed. Yeah, the digitization is almost the fastest part, yeah. right? It's almost yeah. the preparation and planning. That's, yeah. that's the crux. Well, in some ways, it was a nice shakedown cruise to um, explore the partnership and the ways this can be done. But this is an old hat to you, and I know you've done a number of these. Uh, so, Scott, it sounds like the devil is in the details. You were the um, man behind the Excel spreadsheet with all of the data that we had to provide. Tell us about the, 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 the process on your side. Sure. So there are a few moving pieces to this and we're you know we're I think Ben hit the nail on the head that NFTs people kind of assume that they're one thing legally but they may not be and the first thing we actually did with Toko was a fractionalized um, piece of artwork where we actually had shared uh, ownership interests but they were unique because we did put a different part of the picture onto each token now that suddenly got very close to being a regulated asset because you've now got the pooling of monies for a common asset that potentially has a, a designated asset manager uh, and there's an expectation of economic return. Now you're into the definition under the securities laws in Hong Kong. So uh, people will get this wrong because they will just assume, oh, NFT is unregulated, no problem. Wouldn't it be cool if I split my NFT into 10 and sold them off in smaller pieces? All of a sudden, you, you, you leap into regulated territory, which is you know a whole different game in terms of the level of complexity around um, around how you actually structure these things and the approvals that are needed. So one of the first things we do with projects is we assess well what are the rights? What are, what are and I always start with what's it? I look at it from the investor's point of view. I always turn it around because we're often talking to the asset owner or the issuer, but then typically it, well, I'll, I'll be thinking about it from the point of view of, well, I'm going to buy one of these. What do I get? Mm -hmm. And then thinking about yep. what do I get? Do, is it intellectual property rights? Is it economic interest? Is it a share in capital gains when it's subsequently sold? How do I resell? So I think about it from that point of view. And then we assess, is this an unregulated asset? Is it potentially a security? What does that mean in terms of routes to market? Because different jurisdictions um, have different you know, laws uh, and different levels of regulatory preparedness for dealing with these assets. Hong Kong is uh, relatively progressive, but isn't the mar current market leader in this space. So we are doing some of, the, some of these projects in other markets as a result, because there's, there's a regulatory arbitrage game to be played to get projects away. And so there's that legal analysis of what is this thing at law, and then there's obviously the you know the baking in the well, how do we take those contractual rights 
and how do we put those contractual rights that the investor is getting into tokenized form. An exciting bit for me is how do we then use smart contract technology to automate some of this stuff? And this is where, you know, smart contracts, a lot of promise, a lot of talk about smart contracts. When I look at the vast majority of smart contracts out there today, they're really dumb or they're really limited in, in their ambition. And there, there's a few reasons for that. The, the industry is nascent, the kind of trusted external sort of data oracle feeds that you need to drive smart contracts are still either in development or, you know, have some room, you know, have some way to go. Um, but I, I think also there's just been a bit of a lack of ambition. And again, that's one of the reasons why we built Toco was I was talking to other tokenization platforms about what they could do and wanted to do. And they're, they're, they didn't have a lot of ambition around this. They just wanted to create a, a representative ownership right. And that was about it. So we were really looking to use these smart contracts to drive the kind of efficiencies, whether it's on-chain sort of voting to help manage the asset, whether it's you know automatic capital distributions to help with you know the efficiency of running and managing these assets, uh, and then different moving pieces. You know the, we're, we're working on a project at the moment around convertibility of a, an ownership right into an equity right, and building all of that functionality into an autonomous thing rather than oh we'd like to change something, let's all go back to expensive lawyers and 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 start doing the diligence process and rebuilding projects. How do we use this technology to to create greater flexibility? Yeah, I think you I think you bring up a good point on the. Uh kind of the longer term benefits, right? Everything is dumb, or most things are dumb to date, right? In yeah. terms of like, you look at a smart contract, it's like accounts and balances, right? And who can transfer to who? Uh, but I think that as you mentioned, right, the beauty really comes in the future where you can automate uh, and really take advantage of the programmability of, of doing a lot of different actions. Can I also say something real quickly? Um, along the two of your comments, uh, the smart contract in terms of the Oracle service, right? NFTs are quite unique because unlike a cryptocurrency, there is no centralized way or decentralized way of aggregating data to give the current value of that fungible um, asset. So in, in a situation similar to Hashkey in the future when you do custodial services, how do you then judge if you have a unique token what is its value? How do you charge for its custody? And, and what, what are the commercial uh, ramifications around that asset? So uh, really smart contracts not only allow for the downstream activities, which you were talking about, automation, whitelisting, transferring, filtering, uh, recordation, but also upstream as well. Uh, so how do you actually manage its uh, origination and structuring? Uh, and then specifically tied to how do you get data from it? To, to get its true value across multiple different exchanges. Now, uh, Ben, uh, we see this as kind of similar to an IPO or different? Uh, we're talking about fractionalization of ownership. How is it similar? How is it different? Yeah, so I'll comment on a few areas and then I guess on the, you know, kind of the, uh, like the, the deal structure and legal side, maybe I'll kick it over to, to Scott to give a few pointers. I think um, yeah, if you're talking about tokenization and how closely it resembles the, the IPO process, I think one, one area in which it resembles like a traditional, um, you know, the traditional financial IPO process is uh, if it is a security token, then you, ge you generally need the same uh, cohort of all these intermediaries or, uh, or financial services providers to help out and bring the deal to market. So, for example, right. In the, in the structuring phase, probably what's most important, obviously, is for the issuer to actually figure out, you know, what they want to do and why they're doing it, right, kind of the, the business planning. Uh, and then at a certain point, right, they'll want to engage probably the, you know, the earliest and the, pro the earlier in the process, the better. They would probably want to engage both a, you know, kind of a strategic advisor and a, you know, obviously a law firm, a legal advisor, right? Uh, and the kind of the, the strategic advisor, the advisory part of it, really thinking about, okay, you're, you're issuing a token. As, as Scott mentioned, what are the rights that token holders get, right? Um, is, it, is it just, 
you know, right to a future stream of income? Is it somehow tied into the utility of the underlying business? Uh, or is it something, is it something more, more unique? Uh, and then from there, you have to figure out from that, from that bundle of luck, from that bundle of rights, how, how is it, you know, is it a regulated asset? Is it an unregulated asset? Right. And the, 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 the you know, the, the security or the non-security aspect of it will, will also downstream, like inform other elements of the structuring process, right? Like which legal entity is going to issue, issue it? Uh, who do you have to work with? What are the costs going to be? I mean, do you have to do, you know, quarterly annual audits, all the, all this different information. So, uh, you know, that's kind of like the structuring and preparation phase. Um, and then, you know, downstream from that, where it tends to be, I think where it starts to diverge a little bit from the traditional IPO process is kind of the, you know, the, digitiz the digitization, like setting up the cap table and, and, you know, who are the, who are the actual holders of the token and, you know, how do you issue it out and, you know, receiving payments and then issuing into, into wallets. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's different in that stage, right? Because in that stage, once uh, someone subscribes, right, and an investor subscribes to a deal, you have to find a way how to issue tokens to that to that individual, right? Whereas in the traditional markets, maybe it like goes through a custodian to a broker, and everything's paper based, you know, with some digital you know interfaces where you can see what's happening. Uh, but behind the scenes, maybe there's you know a share registrar that's 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 holding that that information. Uh, whereas with tokenization and blockchain, right, a lot of that becomes streamlined and, and, and automated, right? That as as Jeff mentioned, kind of the the DVP process, right, in terms of you know the investor paying and then actually receiving the delivery of the asset into into a digital wallet. Not sure if you wanted to, Scott. You wanted to comment on anything on the? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a traditional cap markets lawyer, but I do have Thanks. the, uh, um, you know, I, I've seen how our teams operate in that space, and it is a, an, an extraordinarily um, manual, paper-based, time-consuming, and expensive task. And when I when I think about what the technology here um, provides in terms of potential efficiencies. Um, what we're going to be able to do is dramatically lower the bar of entry. And I think that, that lower bar of entry is going to create opportunities for people to take their assets that are potentially much smaller than the asset base you would need to do an IPO. And today, if you're going to do an IPO, you need to be of a certain scale. You need to be prepared to spend several millions of dollars in doing the process. You need to have you know, the types of uh, sponsoring banks and, and those types of things. I think what this technology and the efficiencies will provide is the ability for more people to participate. No, that's and, a good sir. And I'm super excited about the, the, then the types of financial instruments that we're going to create with this technology as well, because an IPO is a share. You're buying a share in a company. A company will be doing lots of things. So it's a very diffuse um, investment. I'm kind of investing in the company, which may have all sorts of divisions and things. Tokenization and security tokens will allow investors to be much more focused and to tokenize an asset. Mm. And I've got a piece of that thing which is a much more directed. So I think there's going to be some very interesting developments and fundamentally a different marketplace to the IPO space. Yeah, it kind of goes into you know, project finance, structured finance area. So if I were a shipping company and I IPO'd, you'd be purchasing the entire company. But yeah. if I were a shipping company and tokenizing, I could tokenize a ship or a route or yeah. cargo. I mean, specifically an asset. I mean, I, I, we're already talking to uh, one particular um, uh, airline carrier about tokenizing an air route, for example. Fantastic. Well, look, we have uh, quite a crowd outside looking uh, on here at Hong Kong FinTech Week. Now, let's assume they're all small and medium enterprise owners or they are asset owners. What are some of the things you need to think about as you begin to consider tokenization what's some of the advice you give to the small to medium enterprises ben i'll start with you yeah sure i think the first thing that you need to figure out is basically what you know what what, what pain points what problems are you trying to solve right and i think from from smes and issuers right there's generally 
general several several areas that they would look at right would be access to capital is probably you know generally speaking one of the you know first and foremost the second would be you know exit liquidity for existing you know for existing shareholders right so i would just i would i would look at those i would look at those two and then maybe as a, as a third would be you know kind of uh you know customer engagement right and i'll touch on that in a little bit right so i think the first the first two are relatively straightforward right i think the potential advantages of tokenization is that by streaming streamlining the whole process of investment subscription and then delivery of the assets you potentially you know reduce the cost to uh to execute these transactions and reduce the cost to execute an offering which would you know which potentially means that intermediaries can can reduce their commissions charged um you know which which will enable you know lower lower sized offerings and, th and things like that right so the first access to capital uh, and then exit liquidity. The third, I think, is also interesting from an from an issuer's perspective is, and this is what you see more in the class of of tokens that are issued that are not securities, which is that if you're trying to incentivize usage of a platform, um, you know, one way one way to do that is you know you issue some type of token that gives someone some type of benefit, some early benefit or use in that in that ecosystem. So, for example, we've you know we've spoken in the past to issuers who come from the you know the property management and you know hoteling businesses where they look at okay well i could issue a token that represents you know a you know a pro rata ownership portion of the of the hotel but what if i somehow combined this ownership right with you know some type of membership right whereas like you know if i'm you know, if i'm a private investor i'm a sophisticated investor you know it's a luxury hotel i could own a piece of the hotel right you know i could own shares of it but what if i owned a piece of it and it brought some type of unique vip membership right so there's kind of these utility aspects of it you know customer engagement which are quite fascinating from my from my point of view and uh, Jeffrey, you're um, continuing to advance the technology. What are some of the um, areas that uh, the what are some of the benefits that uh, Toco brings to the uh, to the end users? Of course. So, um, so Toco itself is is quite uh, was built with many considerations in mind. First and foremost, institutional usage of the platform. Um, we are both B2B and technically in the future B2C. And who are our C, who are our clients? Clients of DLA Piper. Asset owners and people who would like to, or companies that would like to tokenize specific assets, businesses, projects, routes of, of, uh, of a specific airline, etc. Um, so uh, with that in mind, our user journeys are actually quite dynamic and we've actually created multiple different products ready for market for uh, different phases of, of, uh, of people who are ready for tokenization. Whether you're an SME, whether you're a corporate with a, a large book, or you're a financial institution, or an individual high net worth invest, uh, individual who has multiple different assets uh, worth, worth thinking about. Or if you just wanna do NFTs with, with art. So the idea here is each flow has a different journey, and each journey has uh, different features. Um, some of those features are related to our hybrid public-private infrastructure where we have a private, in, uh, private blockchain that manages all of the compliance rules, whether it be based on jurisdiction, based on legal compliances, based on various different uh, security checks that we need to do in order to move a token through its token creation lifecycle and future distribution. Um, the, the next thing is really specifically about the asset class. So within Toko itself, there's many different templates or data templates that we've created, different flows, whether you're focusing specifically on real estate, you're, you're doing art, an ESG type project, or, or uh, IP rights, digital content rights, etc. Um, it can be very highly customized to the specific asset class um, that, that uh, uh, you as an as SME or, or as a corporate want to bring to market in terms of tokenization. The last recommendation I would say is like, don't think about the technology. 
at this point. Start small, figure out what you want to do. And Scott says this to me all the time, you know, you have, it's not you have a bad project, you tokenize it, makes it a better project. It still has to be a good project, first and yeah. foremost. The fundamentals of the deal and the offerings that you make, either a private placement or, or an actual you know, pro- professional offering to the market, like an IPO with pers- prospectus processes, all done. That needs to be well thought out, well crafted, considered. That's why you need the legal support and, and the advisory. Uh, from from the syndicates, etc. But what I would do, I would say is, don't get stuck on 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 figuring out blockchain, because blockchain is not cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is not blockchain, right? They're two very specific, uh, different things, um, that support each other and allow each other to function. So um, I'd say, don't worry about the technology. Worry about your project. Let the professionals figure out how to actually make your project go live properly. Yeah, the underlying is still the underlying, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, uh, I want to wrap up and, Scott, ask you, what's the first advice you give a client who's approaching you about potential tokenization? Um, uh, the first advice. Um, <laughs> I, I think to, Je- to, to, to Jeff's point, really, it's that tokenization is a way of making a good project great, but it's not going to you know, create some... Um, financing options for you for a, a defective project so we do we do fundamentally look at asking the question um, could you raise money in the ordinary way actually it is a really tough mm-hmm. question because people come and talk to us about well we'd love to do tokenization I'm like great could you go to the bank and get this finance this afternoon and if they say yes we, we're typically talking to the people we want to be talking to they don't want to go and do traditional bank debt but they could Actually, so um, that's quite a challenging conversation to have with a lot of the people who, who do do approaches because this shouldn't be the way. And you know, we saw we saw questionable ICO activity in the 2017, and, and, and you know, projects that raised a lot of money uh, without you know s- sufficient sort of disclosures and without a lot of credibility and without having delivered on a lot of the promises they made. Uh, and I think it's really important for you know us in the ecosystem that we don't get caught up doing the wrong types of deals to kind of create the negative bad press. We've seen it with crypto. We saw it with um, ICOs. I think we will see it with NFTs when the bubble burst to a certain extent. And I think, you know, we need to be careful as sort of uh, we have a responsibility as kind of um, front runners in this industry to make sure we're bringing the right projects to bear and don't have uh, projects on the front pages of the newspapers for the wrong reasons. So, you know, there's a real credibility test in terms of this. The other thing I always ask clients about is their ambition. You know, why tokenize? What do they What do they see? And I, it's interesting to me. We spent when we were building Toco. I spent a lot of time building up the why you should tokenize. Um, you know, deck. These are the advantages. These are the reasons for doing it. I only use that for my partners in the law firm. Most people who come to me, clients, asset owners, they get it. Very they see that this yeah. is the future. Um, so I don't use that deck very often, except typically with my law partners who are. You know, perhaps clinging on to, but I do it this way, and I always have. And can't we just, you know, keep it that way? So, I'm not seeing a lot of. I'm seeing. I'm seeing large parts of the market actually fully appreciating that this is where we're heading, uh, and the advantages will come with it. Well, we um, have certainly appreciated uh, minting uh, the commemorative NFT for Hong Kong FinTech Week 2021. We encourage all of our listeners, please check out. Uh, hashkey.com backslash tokenization to learn more about the project. And if you're here on the floor, download Hashkey Me and we'll see one of our staff members and we'll give you a copy of our commemorative token. It's the first of many projects we hope to do together as we've announced an MOU today with between Hashkey Group and Toco, which is the partnership of BCW and DLA Piper. So we're thrilled to have the first of many uh, projects underway and we thank you for your time today on Crypto Savvy. 
We hope you found that of interest. It's an example of how tokenization will work, whether you're looking at a single piece of art, a 5,000 copy commemorative giveaway for Hong Kong FinTech Week, or an asset, whether it's a ship or building or a company. Thank you. And if you are listening to this podcast, make sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining Crypto Savvy live from Hong Kong FinTech Week. I am your host, Walter Jennings, thanking you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy, the podcast that delivers the essentials, brought to you by Hashkey Group.